Hi, it's Mike. Could you go to, say, Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen? Those are two places to listen. And give us a review. And in fact, why don't you take the spirit of that review and maybe tell a friend about the gist, follow the gist. All these things really help. Help me help you help me. Thank you. Hello, it's Saturday. This is the Saturday Show. The Saturday Show is an institution. It's an institution by now. Did you know that? Where we play you one from the week and one from the vaults. So the one from the vaults is going to be my interview a couple years ago. It was a season two of the Gist interview with Stephen Root, one of the most versatile actors around. He plays Fuchs on Barry, which just ended the HBO show Barry overwhelmed and overshadowed by that succession show. Barry was still a really excellent and uh, by the end, formally innovative show. So I talked to Fuchs, who becomes the Raven in Barry. Uh, I quite enjoyed the interview. Back when I talked to him, he was, uh, his character at least, was cavorting with goats. And then the best from the week was the one I did on Thursday. I take you to the town, the city of Sacramento. City of 500,000 people, capital of California. Not a lot of people know that. Not a lot of people are saying that, but it's true. And the town leaders there have had a, uh, like a lot of towns, a wee problem. And I do mean a wee problem with Proud Boys and perhaps neo-Nazis or about, or right-wing fellers. And one came up to speak and other members of the town community didn't like it. And there was a shouting and there was a kerfuffle and the the end result of the kerfuffle was everyone getting together saying how much they hated the Nazis. But really, was this the best they could have done? I ask, I do ask in my spiel. If you are an elected official, and I know I have several in the audience, and you preside over a town meeting situation, or maybe even some other situation where everyone gets their chance to speak, and someone said something that was, you know, at least neo-Nazi adjacent, something the Proud Boys would like. I play you some clips of what this guy says. And he does make a mention of Jew bankers. If he had said Jewish, would it have been that much of a problem? Probably, content-wise. What would you do? What would you do? What is the best course of action when you have, as I described them, technical term, a kook saying things that no one likes? And if it's maybe about gamma rays being broadcast to you from the top of the Pan Am building. That is one thing, because I think the Pan Am building is no more. The Pan Am, I think it's AT&T. But you know, what if it is of a, say, racist, anti-Semitic nature? What is the best course of action? I offer one, Sacramento took another. Listen, and you can decide. In booking this interview, I came to a realization. The actor Stephen Root might be my favorite actor ever, and I base it on this. When you're going down a list of people who may be in a movie or TV show, and you're on the fence, or I'm on the fence, or possibly mildly interested, once I get to that name Stephen Root, you know, usually third or fourth, I am almost always say, I'm in. If Stephen <laughs> Root is involved, at least that performance will be great. It was in Office Space. It was in the TV show News Radio. Just the other week, I was watching an old Seinfeld, and there he was 
was in the back of a bank giving advice. I'm like, it's Stephen Root. And he crushed the role as always. He stars as Fuchs in Barry, which is just about the funniest and most body. unexpectedly yes, funny body. show on TV. It's body, yes. <laughs> and, he's doing, and he's doing an impression of uh, his co-star. Barry is such a fun guy. Stephen Root, welcome to The Gist. Hi. Thanks, man. Yeah. So let's talk Barry, first of all. Um, cliched question, but I do want to know. On paper, when you got the script, did it jump out at you as interesting, amazing, different from what you've seen? Yeah, all those things. Um, because when I'm in this latter part of my career, that's what, <laughs> that's what I look at first is a script. Well, not, not if it's good, but if it's great. And I thought this one was great. And it had Bill Hader in it. And I was a huge uh, Bill Hader fan. Uh, and at that point, Henry uh, wasn't wasn't in it yet, but he, like myself, uh, went in to show him. And they said, you know, we don't want audition, but we want to sh- we want to see what you do with it. And we both did that. And once I knew Henry was in, I knew I was in. He's amazing. Uh, but you didn't have scenes with him, right, until the very end of season no, two. No, no, I didn't have any scenes with him. Um, I, and most of my stuff in that er- on that early season was with with Anthony Kerrigan, who he plays NoHo Hank. But yeah, yeah, and that was that was so fun and so great. We were out in the woods and had a, just had a blast. But you saw, you get excited to be in the show because Henry Winkler's in it, and then you find out it's a couple of years before you actually get to do a scene with the guy. Uh huh. Exactly. But that's okay. Yeah. Because uh, even even though a lot of the show is set uh, shot separately in different different places, we don't get to intermingle much. We see each other. You know. Well, that we actually got to rehearse a little bit on this show, which is fantastic. <laughs> Doesn't happen all the time. So we'd see each other passing in rehearsals, and we we used to do table reads pre-COVID. Of course, we don't do that now. So yeah, we got to hook up a little bit. So from when we say you saw the script, would it be just the script of the pilot to get an idea? Yeah, yeah, okay. just the script of the pilot. But the, uh, again, that changed dramatically. We shot that pilot, and the character that I did in that pilot was not the character I'm doing now. Um, he was very much of over the top, yelling all the time, mean, just uh, at, at an 11. Mm-hmm. And when they finished the pilot, they said, Steve's great. He's at an 11. Where's he going to go? So yeah. um, HBO and Bill figured out, well, let's try, let's go bad uncle. Bad uncle. So that you start the series with, hey, pal, how are you? I just want to <laughs> do something, <laughs> you know. So you start in here and then you can build to the eleven. So that's really interesting. If this was conceived, like if this was 20 years ago before the era of uh, prestige TV, it probably would have been a really interesting movie. And the original character you played at an 11, that could have worked for the movie version. Absolutely. But for a TV show, you want more room for growth. Yeah, you got you to gotta have some backstory and some stuff. And we ended up having great backstory because uh, Bill and the writers are just unbelievable. Also, in terms of self-preservation, if you start off with an 11 in a TV show where people are getting killed left and right, it is more tempting just to off your character. You need some rest in between. (laughs) So the thing about this character, this show, but also so many of your characters is you play people with a lot of menace and thinking about your Boardwalk Empire character and just different kind of maybe scheming Southerners, which is a trope that you're yeah, into. Yeah, the Perry but you Mason also play, guy. Perry Mason right. guy, yeah. Uh-huh. So you play dangerous, but you also play, you've played perhaps the meekest character in cinema history <laughs> and in office space and you do that well too. Well, you know, again, good script, good people, too much fun. 
Yeah, but that is also where a lot of, don't you agree that that's also where a lot of the humor of Barry lies? The interplay between menace, I mean, death is going on, and gruesomely depicted death, and really anodyne details of life, like, a, you know, good thing that Groupon didn't expire. And, you know, 20, epi- 20 examples of that a season. Yeah, well, I think with with this character, we've, we've introduced the, the actual love very early on. He really loves Barry. It truly, truly loves Barry, but he's truly screwed up and can't and can't separate that. So, you know, there's there's real love for the character and that and I got to play that. But I also got to play the revenge. I mean, this season is uh, a season of revenge and a season for you of uh, here sign co-stars. This is of or related to goats. The word here sign. Uh, how is working with the goats? <laughs> Oh, I'll, I'll, uh, the, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 I've, you've gone past me. The ghost? Goats. Oh, the goats. <laughs> well, I'm, hey, I'm a, I'm a 70 year old cis male. I, I can't hear anymore. <laughs> Do you think it's your cisness? It's your. <laughs> um, I didn't goats. know about gender identity and deafness correlating, but okay. <laughs> uh, goats. The best thing about the goats, and they were all great. There was a whole herd of them. There was one main goat that you actually had to lead around and and had to love you a little bit. Uh, but the hardest part of that shoot was the goat herders, because we we get in this enormous field to shoot these big wide shots, and and Bill would go, "Okay, Stephen, you get the lead goat, then put him over here, and then we're going to do that, that, that." Okay, and the goat herders right there with the other goats. And he says, okay, so when we shoot, you, you guys just, you know, vacate the screen. And, right. uh, and he says, okay, action. They don't go anywhere. The code herders just stay right there. He says, no, no, no. See, you've got to get out of the picture. you got to go all the way over here. Okay? Okay, good. All right. And action. Nothing. So <laughs> the hardest part of doing the goat scene was the goat, herding the goat herders. Yeah, who will herd the herders? Yeah, yeah. So these were not TV goats or no, movie goats. These were these were these were real goats, but the herders were not used to maybe, you know, the uh, the the uh, whole rigmarole of doing it. Yeah, yeah, they're kind animals, but they do kind of show affection by butting you sometimes. They they, they will butt you sometimes, but you're their best friend if you have a handful of corn. It's better <laughs> than gold. <laughs> so that if people haven't seen it. On a couple, and I'm, I'm through, I think, episode seven this season, there are there is this recurring theme, this trope of you being nursed back to life by an attractive brunette. And I was thinking, okay, we've seen this before, and I was trying to actually think, well, what is the er text for this? Where have we seen this? And I think it may be from that John Wayne movie, Angel and the Bad Man, with, mm, but yeah. I'm not sure. It seems familiar, but do you know the exact movies I where we've seen yeah, it? Yeah, I couldn't tell you the exact movies, but that's a good reference reference to it. But it all works in terms of um, he, he gets to a place with these beautiful women that's like, uh, life is good. There should be just, you should just enjoy it. And he can't do it. He can't, He just is not psychologically able to not do the revenge. And that's what this whole season is about for him. He's just, he can't do it. Do you do the thing that a lot of actors do where you invent a backstory for your character, even if it doesn't, even if it isn't explicitly referenced? On not, that's not how I work mostly. I mostly work on the page, but uh, yeah, you do need to do it sometimes. In this case, not as much because... Uh, Bill wrote some good stuff and we talked about some stuff, but uh, a, a detailed 
uh, vision of this guy's backstory. No, we didn't do that. It always did strike me for the actors that do. Well, what if then it's contradicted? Again, different if it's in a movie where the script's not going to change that much in a TV show. But what if the what if it's contradicted uh, by the actual writers? Then it seems like it yeah. would do some sort of schizophrenia. Yeah, but in the then action. again, it seems to be what kind of actor you are. Are you method? Are you kind of method? Uh, if you're full method, yes, you're going to go ahead and do that backstory. That's not where I came from. I came from, I came from uh, Shakespeare and theater in New York and. Uh, the backstory was the play, so that's where yes. I came from. Well, you also came literally from Sarasota, Florida, right? <laughs> no, I did not. No? I where? was born in Sarasota, Florida, and three weeks later, I was this, the youngest kid to take a plane right out of there to uh, New Orleans. And then, Okay, so you grew up in New Orleans. I did not. No. I, uh, <laughs> no, I, here's the deal. My dad was a construction uh, supervisor on steam power plants. Steam power plants took a year and a half. To, to, to put up by uh, Vasco Services. So he, he worked for Vasco. They'd say, you go to New Orleans and you finish that one. Then you go to Glen Rock, Wyoming, you finish that one. Then you go to Sioux City, Iowa, when you finish that one. So I, every year and a half, I was someplace new. And did you like that? I didn't know it was odd, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, to go into different cities and be in a thousand different schools and not have any, you know, really boyhood friends because I was in a different place. But I think it what it did was made a gypsy out of me, which is perfect for this life. Because you're going in, you're going out. You're Especially if you're guest starring, you're going into a family, getting out. Going into the next family, getting out. So that was, I think, good for later on. Yeah. And did it, did you kind of adopt, probably overthink this because you are an actor with a lot of range, but did you use the opportunity to kind of try on different personas when you'd get to a different school? In the last school, I was kind of this guy and then this school. Didn't do I that early in my life, no. I, did I do that after I got out? I, I went to college at UF, I'm a Gator. So uh, after, after doing the training program there, yes, I would all the time use that. When I was in New York, whenever I did a play somewhere else, I would look for... I would look for the guys to go, oh, yeah, I want to use that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And what about, you do a lot of Southern roles and uh, impeccable Southern accent, even though there's no such thing as a Southern accent. No. Right? It changes from but, region yeah. to region. Yeah. So uh, how did you, how did that, did you consider yourself Southern when you first got to New well, York and did you Broadway? Know, when I got to New York, uh, there was a whole bunch of Southern contingent actors who were from Alabama, Georgia you know, uh, Florida, and we kind of coalesced in New York and said, ha had to help each other because we were starving actors back then. So yeah, we I knew a lot of Southern guys, ended up doing a lot of Southern plays. In fact, I did two years of Driving Miss Daisy and the National Tour. So did lots of Southern plays. Uh, so I, I kind of felt Southern by by the end of that, yeah. And then does it happen that you get cast as someone who maybe does uh, a a syrupy accent or a menacing accent, uh, and then it just propels. You, you keep getting past, cast in that way. Yeah, well, uh, you know that's why I've been trying desperately to not get typecast my whole uh, whole thing. So if I do do comedy for a while, I did news radio for a while, stopped doing um, sitcoms for a while, and didn't you know uh, West Wing and and uh, what a CSI whatever. Um, yeah. just to, just to get out and get out and, and, and take a casting director and go, hello, he can act, he can do other stuff. That's awesome. Have you ever, don't take it as an insult. I told you, you're like my favorite actor. Have you ever been number one on, on any call sheet? Mm, a short, 
<laughs> Maybe uh-huh. in a short. <laughs> and like, that was that's like the leading day. the leading hitter in double A. I'm hoping to do that at some point. Uh, uh-huh. But it would have to be a project that I developed to, that I wanted to bring to somebody uh, as an actor for hire. I don't want to be an actor for hire as a, in on the number one. I want, right. I want to be involved more than that. What stories do you want to tell? What are you drawn to? It's not so much what it is, but but if it's if it's interesting to me in terms of a good uh, whether it's a dramatic story or a comedy, it doesn't matter to me as long as it's interesting for me to do. You know, have I done this? Have I walked this this tightrope? And I did True Blood because uh, when do you get to play a gay vampire? You know, you yes. you want to walk different different lines. So if it's something that I want to do, it'll be something different, you know? Yes, he was, and he was the most uh, benign vampire, I think, in that series. There was no menace to him. No, there wasn't. Poor guy. Yeah, although it worked out. Everyone else was, I'm not going to say, if not chewing the scenery, chewing their co-stars' necks. <laughs> and you were, it's a ni- it was a nice counterpoint to some of the general tone of that series, which I watched, I think, all of it. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Plus, I got to meet a couple of the people that I would... Lois Smith, later on, I would do a play in New York with her and uh, just a lot of great people. I'm sure this is the role you get asked about the most, but Milton in office space. Do you have any sense of how big that was going to be when you committed to it? No, we were we were doing a, a fun B movie for Mike Judge, you know, and half the people in it uh, were doing King of the Hill. You know, we were doing King of the Hill at the time. And he asked a bunch of us to go read it for Fox and he was gonna read Milton. He decided, nah, I don't want to. You go ahead and read it. <laughs> and, then, huh. and then we uh, he, he gave me an idea. He showed me a pencil sketch of what that character was like. And he said, what would you do? You know, do something around that, but not that. So I gave him a lisp and, and, and whatever else I did for it. Yeah. Yeah. The pencil sketch. I, I've seen the, um, now that you mentioned, I've seen the cartoon. It has this odd pulsating, well, like, like many of his drawings do, yeah. right? Early stuff, did, yeah. Did, do you think that influenced the, who the character was? The fact that it was a you know a weird non uh, photographic type representation mm, of him because um, yeah. it was it was very short and I had no time to uh, even think about it. I just had to come up with something on the fly. And uh, fortunately, as we got into the script, it was it was clearer to me what this guy was. Now a lot of actors' legacies are they played a character who was maybe a real person. We can't think of the real person without thinking of the actor. That's an accomplishment. But you might be the only actor who, because of the humanity you brought to a character, breathed into the world, an actual office supply, that did not exist beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got you could say the same with Gary Cole. I mean, Gary Cole is iconic just, just for, for saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think of, but I was at a friend's house and he had a red swing line stapler. And I said, do you know the history of the red swing line stapler? And they did not. And that, it didn't exist before Milton obsessed over it, right? Oh gosh, no, no, that they, <laughs> they, because that, that movie came out in 99 and 2000 into the, the blockbuster world, that was just, that was what was exploding at the time. And uh, I think without uh, video rental, that, that movie wouldn't have done what it did. 
Yeah. Do you have a box of those? Did Swingline send you a box of the red staplers? Always. <laughs> Always have to sign them. <laughs> there isn't a, a set I don't go on where I don't sign some. Uh, sign <laughs> at least one. <laughs> at least. Well, now I'm sure you're going to be asked to sign goats, so that's a new challenge. That would be something else. I'm going to have to find something cool to sign as a goat. That, that's, uh, that'll be a challenge. <laughs> well, Stephen Root is, uh, to me, as I have disclosed, a bit of the goat of character actors. He's in season three and who knows how many more seasons of Barry. Although, like we said, anyone could die at any time. You Barry. never know. Absolutely. Never. There's nobody safe on this show. <laughs> Thanks so much. I enjoyed the talk. Thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. Man. And now the spiel. It all started two weeks ago when the Sacramento City Council heard from Ryan Massano. The 43-year-old local man is a far-right, he claims not Nazi, his views suggest Nazi sympathies, and he had some things to say during the open comment period at the City Council meeting. Winding through a litany of complaints from unions to the direct election of senators, Massano landed on this point. Until union control of police and all other professions is ended, they will not be truly accountable to the people they serve. Unions profess to give fair wages and benefits, but in reality it is about absolute control from the top of the unions. If white supremacists hate bigotry, bigotry, sexism, and racism from whites was a problem in Sacramento, then why isn't the entire Sacramento City Council made up of straight whites? So we see you are deceiving when you speak about the problems of racism, white supremacy, Nazis, and hate. Just because you hate the truth does not make a white person who tells it hateful. Anti-Semitism used to mean someone who hates all Jews. Now it means someone who is hated by Jew bankers. 90% hey, of... see you later, pal. We don't want to hear any more from you. Okay, I have, I, I have the shit. First Amendment. I have the First Amendment. This is a violation of my First Amendment rights. The voice shutting him down there was Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg, who had to concede, yes, the First Amendment and rules of decorum allowed Masano to finish, but the tumult had just started. The next week, Masano returned. With him, Jeffrey Perrine, a proud boy who has lately been an unsuccessful candidate for local office in Sacramento in the area. When Masano's name was announced as a speaker, but before he began to speak, a half dozen protesters surrounded the lectern, unfurled banners, and chanted their displeasure. Violation of Chapter 5 of the Council Rules of Procedure. Hey, Madam Clerk, we're going to recess for five minutes. We're going to recess for five minutes. The recess is for 10 minutes at 2 6 40. The meeting was recessed, some order was restored, and then as Masano and his proud boy pal were seated in the back of the chamber, they were once again confronted by protesters who screamed and at one point sprayed the contents of a water bottle at them. The meeting was adjourned for the night. But remember how I started with the words, it all started? That's never quite true. Histories and contexts are brought to bear. And in the case of Sacramento politics, 
The meetings had become steadily disrupted by protesters, angry at police brutality, angry at plans to clear homeless encampments. Hours before Masano first spoke, the open comments period prompted such expressions as outrage as this one directed at Mayor Steinberg. Did you fix everything? Is it all done? Is every problem addressed or is this merely a distraction so you can hide from criticism from a public you already hate to even have to listen to? Because we know you. With the Strong Mayor Initiative, you showed your whole ass by lowering the number of days that you would have to engage with the public to do, I think it was, in a year? Two days. Lie to me again about how you were a responsive mayor who cares about his constituents. Lie to me, but make it sweet, make it soothing, and make it undeniably false like every other one of your words. The First Amendment may not matter to you, but it matters to me. Making my disenfranchisement a part of the bureaucracy is bullshit. Fuck your decorum and fuck you, Daryl. What Steinberg and the council had proposed was the institution of a decorum officer so that debate or discussion could proceed without chaos. There were numerous objectors, several of whom would later come to protest the far-right Masano, or not even come to protest him. They were there already. These issues all conflate. How much to allow dissent? Who defines dissent? What's the line between energetic dissent and the inability of a public meeting to proceed? After the March 23rd disruption, several members of the council joined in saying the presence of the far right and anti-Semitic messaging bothered them. Lisa Kaplan, a council member, said, As a council member, I don't feel safe in our meeting. It is appropriate to recess. I am Jewish and have been offended and disturbed each time the anti-Semitic has spoken publicly, specifically turning my back when he speaks. Tonight he brought more Proud Boys. I did not feel safe with them in the audience, period. Fellow council member Karina Talamantis said, The council gets disrupted sometimes. Usually it's for no more than a few minutes. Tonight our council meeting came to a halt due to the hatred of a few anti-Semitic and racist individuals. Our city and our council is no place for that kind of hate. Well, technically it was disrupted by the protesters screaming at the anti-Semitic and racist staters, if not statements. I can't tell anyone to feel safe, to not feel safe, but there are metal detectors outside the chamber. There were lots and lots of police, and the only violent acts, as far as I could see, came from protesters who began to push the Proud Boys, and their friends. Now, the Proud Boys and Masano know what they're doing. You say an outrageous thing, you get a reaction, and you pretend, oh, I'm just here for civil discussion. The very statements themselves are uncivil, as in they are the opposite of a functioning civilization to blame Jewish bankers. But since the advent of the town hall, all sorts of meetings of this type have had kooks. Since the First Amendment really began to be defended, you know, after the ACLU got involved in the 70s, all public meetings risk weirdos, gadflies, wackadoodles. The anti-Semitic version of them are truly pernicious, but for most of my life, when someone raised their hand and proclaimed their anti-Semitic creed, it just brought embarrassment to the speaker. Now I know there is a move towards deplatforming, that if statements are ignored and moved on from, well, then they could take hold in an impressionable brain and be allowed to fester. Yeah, that's probably true online, where the statements remain out of touch, but in a public forum, I do think the motivations of the screamer are not to protect the next mind down the line who could be infected. They're to express the outrage contained within their own minds. Think about the amount of attention given to otherwise insipid and 
irrelevant comments. Today's Sacramento Bee featured a front page spread. Jewish leaders denounce anti-Semitic comments at council meetings. It chronicled with quotes from the Jewish Federation of Sacramento, who appeared alongside the Jewish Community Relations Council, the Sacramento Board of Rabbis, the Sacramento LGBT Community Center, the Roman Catholic Diocese of Sacramento, Sacramento Area Congregations Together, the Sacramento Central Labor Council, and NAACP Sacramento, all at this press conference because one guy said some stupid things for two minutes. Barry Broad, president of the Jewish Federation of Sacramento, said they oppose such rhetoric, quote, not anywhere, ever again, and we need to keep saying it until the evil is drowned out by the good. Figuratively, yeah. But a heckler's veto? I don't think so. That is the rule of the council that people get to speak. Can't do what you heard there, which is to curse at a member of the council. But that wasn't censured when it happened. You can't threaten anybody. People have been arrested because of threats. But you do get to speak. That's the rule, and it needs to be the rule. Politically, the presence of an agreed-upon enemy like a Proud Boy or Masano gives embattled members of the council a common cause. Who isn't against Sacramento Nazis? We can all agree that Sacramento Nazis are a bad development. But the point of local governance is to discuss things that we all can't agree on. All threats must be investigated and prosecuted. All potential threats especially when they come from a self-declared Nazi, need to be closely monitored. All acts jeopardizing safety demand intervention. But I don't know if the opinion of the least credible member of the community should be allowed such sway. It seems not an overreaction emotionally. I understand and don't begrudge anyone their deep distress at hearing that. But strategically, I do think it was an overreaction. Who doesn't hate a Sacramento Nazi? I know I do. But I wonder whether the best manifestation of my revulsion is to just let him say his piece, allow him his constitutional right, and then to quickly move on. And that's it for the Saturday show. Thank you to my producer, Corey Wara, and the senior producer of The Gist, Joel Patterson. And we will talk to you on Monday.